Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. It's that time again, that interlude between Christmas and New Year, when we unwrap a selection box of our favourite clips from the year past. Reflect on conversations that have stuck in the mind, conversations that have changed our minds, and conversations that have made us smile and occasionally wipe away a bit of dust from our eyes. I'm here after the big Lakeland thaw in a cottage near Skelthbridge, fire blazing, tea brewing, and I'm in the company of author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Listeners will be delighted to hear us all back again because the review of the year is a special occasion. And we are joined for the third time on Country Stride by Lakeland Walking Tales author and long-time contributor to Lakeland Walker magazine, George Kitching. And I think last time, George, we were out, we were on a very misty Ilgil head. We certainly were. We're a very rainy day compared to the nice sunshine we have today. Yeah, it was rather lovely, isn't it? And we actually got lost, <laughs> which was a huge embarrassment, I think, in the company, particularly of a, a fell ranger guy. Yes, indeed. Well, of course, Ilgil head it suggests a place of ill travelling. <laughs> no good will come of it. <laughs> no good will come of it. So over the next hour and a bit, we'll sift through 19 episodes and 20 hours worth of recordings from as far-flung as Ennerdale, Wigton, Coniston, Grasmere, Keswick, and a long way from home, the big sky, North York Moors. We'll ponder pubs, peat bogs, and potato-vators. We'll visit Crosswaite, Coniston Old Man, and the Coast to Coast. We'll talk Wainwright and how the romance of his prose still draws folk to the fells. We'll return to our big 100th episode and ask what makes Lakeland magic. And we'll hear from, among others, Bill Burkett, Will Rawling, Debbie North, Mark Hatton, Fell Foodie, Rob and Harriet Fraser, Charlotte Fairburn, Harvey Wilkinson, Jen Hall and Melvin Bragg. But before all of that, we're going to start where else? But with AW and with one of your choices, Mark, this is Eric Robson describing his first meeting with the great fell wanderer in a Kendall cafe where he notices something amiss with a slice of boiled ham. The backstory was that Richard Else, a great friend of mine, had always wanted to make a programme with Wainwright, a television programme. And he eventually approached him talk through what they would do with the programme and the rest of it. And Wainwright said, I don't want nothing to do with these television people. The great and the good of the Lake District. And Richard, thinking on his feet, jumped in and said, no, 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 that's not not what we're planning to do. We would like to make it with a a young fell farmer from Wasdale called Eric Robson. And uh, Wainwright graciously... Uh, said, okay, well, I'll meet him. And Betty backed us up because she was quite keen that he did this programme as well. So I was summoned to uh, a greasy spoon in in Kendall. (laughs) And we sat and chatted, myself, Richard, Betty and A.W. And A.W. didn't say a word. Betty did all the talking from their side of the table. It chatted on for a bit, you know, with no input from A.W. Until... Out of the corner of my eye, I I saw a slice of boiled ham disappearing off my plate. (laughs) And uh, looked at it, and and Betty said, Oh, don't don't worry about him. He's taking it home for Totty the cat. And uh, so I was invited to meet Totty the cat. And uh, I liked liked her very much. She was 
lovely creature. I, I always reckon that because Tossie got on with me, that's why Wainwright agreed to let me do the programmes with him. <laughs> Eric was talking there about his first ever meeting with Wainwright. Can you remember yours, Mark? What was your first ever meeting? Rewind those years. Oh, gosh, that is going back. Back to 1971. I travelled up from my home in Oxfordshire. I stayed with my aunt and uncle near Kobe Lonsdale at a place called Leck. The Saturday I wandered on the Howgill Fells because I'd often seen them and thought, well, I must get onto those fells. And so on the Sunday morning I drove from Leck up to Kendal. I planned to meet Alfred Wainwright somewhere around one o'clock in the afternoon. But I got there at least an hour early and I parked up in Kendall Green and I sat in the car, nervous, shaking, quivering. I knew about this important writer, but the thought of meeting him, oh, gosh. How old were you at this time, Mark? Gosh, 71. I would have been 23. And you've given a, a clue about your age. Yeah, next year I'll be 75, but I've got years of good walking in me still. OK, so you, you were 23. Yep. And you're nervously shaking in your car an hour early. Yes. <laughs> I walked up to see where the house was and I went back and sat in the car. And then anyway, I went down nervously, tapped on the door. I could hear the voices in the interior and the door opened. A little lady came to the door and it was Betty. Very charming, very smiley, very welcoming. Drew me into the sitting room made me a cup of tea. It took a probably a good quarter of an hour before trump, 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 down the stairs came the man himself. And I found very quickly that my enthusiasm, my existing knowledge of the fells appealed to him. He's a nice boy, he said to Betty. And he was embroiled in a coast-to-coast walk at the time. So I saw the early concepts of it. In subsequent weekends in 1972, I walked with him portions of the central section of the route, the last bit being from Reith to Mask, where in fact he finished his ground research, which people who walk the coast to coast assume he indeed walked from St Bees to Robin Hood's Bay. He didn't. He never walked the whole thing as one walk. He did all of it as day trips, invariably double walking every piece. So meeting him and getting to know him, sharing fell days, not just on the coast to coast, but in his outlying fells. I got to know him as a disciple, but as somebody who he appreciated because I love pen and ink drawing. And that was our commonality. Well, we'll stick with AW as we move on to two more clips now about AW's sense of humour. Uh, something not often acknowledged by many of his disciples. First clip, it features Eric again, and it sees the film crew, they're making the television series with him, get a soaking when A.W. uncharacteristically doesn't stop talking. Uh, And the second is the infamous tale of Wainwright's first television appearance and the battle of creative wills between Eric and A.W., I remember once, but we were talking about the fact that Wainwright used to spend, you know, in his younger days, he used to spend nights out on the hill because mm. he, he didn't have a car. He never learned to drive. And, you know, he'd either miss the bus or he was going to come back to the same place the next morning. And therefore, why go home tonight? He was frightened of cows, mm. but he still used to spend nights on the hill. 
so he'd get behind the stone wall in the hope that if the cow was anywhere, it's on the other side of the stone wall, it wouldn't bother him. And we were telling this story somewhere in the Northern Fells, I think. And uh, he and I were standing in the shelter of a, a sort of field barn. And the crew were out in the pasture. And we started talking. And just as we started talking, it started to rain. And I've never known A.W. do a longer piece <laughs> because the crew were out there and he just knew that the longer he talked, the wetter they got. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Richard and I had organised that we would film both versions at the same time. So we'd film A.W.'s version of the programme and we'd film Richard Elsie's version of the programme and hopefully we'd be able to make something of the, between the two. And uh, we got halfway down to Horton in Ribblesdale, I think it was, and he hadn't said anything we could use at all, nothing. He'd asked a lot of questions about Herdwick Sheep. So far as Richard's script was concerned, forget it, it was out the window. Mm-hmm. But halfway down, I thought, I've got to do something here to get something to, that's usable. So I said to A.W., well, tell me what gave you the idea of doing this series of books in the first place. And there was a long pause and a very big puff of three nuns tobacco smoke. And he says, you can't ask me that. You don't know who I am yet. <laughs> and out of the corner of my eye, the sound recorders, because he was working on radio mics, the sound recorders stumbled and went into a peat bog. He was laughing so hard. <laughs> And we eventually got down, I think it was Horton in Ribblesdale, we got down to, and <laughs> what was supposed to happen in uh, A.W.'s script was that somebody came up, was walking through the yard, and finger up, pointed, walked across, slapped A.W. on the back and said, Hello, A.W. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it wasn't the greatest of starts. Okay, so a little bit of context on that second clip, which I think is fabulous. This is something that Richard Else referred to as well, Mark, if you remember way back in one of the lockdowns when we did a a remote podcast with him. On the very first TV recording, they go out together. It's either Penigent, Penigent, isn't it? Yeah. And AW has this very fixed idea of a kind of internal script about how this television program is going to go and of course Richard Ells also has a fixed script (laughs) and there's this ongoing battle of wills where Eric is kind of torn in the middle trying to get something out of AW which he is not willing to do and this brilliant showdown really in the car park at the end where he reveals who he is and his idea has been that through the rest of the program nobody would know (laughs) <laughs> this was A.W. And then this random person comes up and says, oh, my goodness, you're Wainwright. But it's a really great story and quite an interesting insight, I would think, into his mind. I mean, he felt that he knew better how to put together a TV programme than the professionals. Yes. Wainwright was used to creating things from beginning to end, from cover to cover. So he assumed that the programmes were like that. He didn't realise that people watching the programme will have been totally au fait who he was <laughs> from the very moment his picture came on the screen. And the humour. Did you see that, Mark? Did you get the humour in your interactions with him? I would have been inevitably playing with words with him and 
he liked the play of words because he could use them. He was more adept at using language than I ever was. He did lots of cartoons when he was younger. He saw people with that humorous slant to Some it. of those are in Next Fell Wonder, aren't they, of his colleagues? And they're very funny. Even in the pictorial guides, I think, the, the humour ripples all the way through them. I mean, bits about novice fell walkers needing to learn the difference between bilberries and sheep droppings and so on. And yeah. I mean, there's one passage I love, which when you think, by the time we have in Kendall, I mean, we rose to be the borough treasurer, you know, he was quite a pillar of the establishment, really. But at the same time, he was a complete rebel. And yes. uh, when it came to the NAB, which was private ground and you weren't supposed to walk on it, whatever, and he'd mapped all the director sense, of course. And how, as some, a pillar of the establishment, do you teach people how to trespass on it and still do it responsibly, whatever? And, and I think it's brilliant. If I may read this out, I've got the passage. The author carried out his explorations surreptitiously and without permission, not caring to risk a refusal. He was not detected. This may possibly have been due to his marked resemblance to an old stag. The following notes on direct ascents will therefore be of little interest to anybody but deer with a poor sense of direction. Otherwise you get nabbed. <laughs> yeah, very good. And my little one here, this is, um, he's describing the view here from the top of Coniston Old Man. And he says, a vast seascape makes a glorious sweep across the southern horizon, ranging from the Pennines to Black Coombe and further west to the Isle of Man. Most people, not being fell walkers, fix their eyes in this direction and squeals of joy announce the sighting of Calder Hall Power Station and Blackpool Tower. <laughs> this book does not deign to cater for such tastes. <laughs> yeah, going up Hino's yeah. head on right. Kirk Fell, he's looking through his legs because yeah. it's quite the most steep ascent that possibly. <laughs> and then you realise that the summit you've come to isn't probably the highest point of the fell. It's got two summits, <laughs> uh, Kirk Fell. But it's better to come up Bay Saw Slack from the Ennerdale side. That's a much more intriguing way up. Well, we'll return to AW a little bit later, but for now... A little nature interlude as we enter, very briefly, the magical worlds of lichens and mosses. Three clips here. The first featuring Pete Martin, telling us why lichens matter. Next, Sean Prokovich gets very enthusiastic about sphagnum on the peewits. Finally, we return to Pete, talking about the great moss and lichen living crust on a Borrowdale dry stone wall. So lichens are really intrinsic to the building blocks of life and a very, very large number of insects, birds, creepy crawlies of all kind live in lichens, feed in lichens, feed on lichens. From a purely human point of view, people have been eating them for thousands of years, people have been using them as dyes, there have been huge commercial dye operations using some lichens. Ancient Egyptian mummies were stuffed with Pseudovernia furfuracea, a lichen. Many lichens are thought to have antiseptic properties, with back to those lichen chemicals again. But really very little work has been done on the stuff that lichens produce. What's the unusual characteristic of sphagnum moss? Oh, I mean, oh, I love sphagnum. It's a fantastic plant. Um, it really is almost a bit of a, an ecosystem engineer. It's so perfectly adapted to these bog conditions. It, it holds up to 28 times its own weight in water. What I was saying before about it, it acts like a sponge, really. And it's due to sphagnum, you get a lot of that water retention. It obviously grows in these really 
inhospitable kind of conditions for most other plants. In doing so, it also engineers the environment too. So, you know, when we talk about peat, why it doesn't degrade, it's a lot of it is to do with enzymes that sphagnum produce that basically stops bacteria and decomposition from occurring, allows that buildup of the peat. And I assume there is only one sphagnum moss. Is that true? To the trained eye, there's dozens of species here in the UK alone. The amazing thing about them is each one inhabits like a different ecological niche. So you'll get the ones that are in the pools are very well adapted to be an aquatic plant. And then you have the ones that grade as you get wetter to drier, forming hummocks and things like that. These beautiful domes of peat. There's many species and each one of them kind of serves a different purpose and can also tell you a wealth of information about what you're looking at uh, in the landscape. A wall is basically just a collection of rocks, like an outcrop, but a bit more fissured with holes in between where the stones have been put. It's a kind of blank canvas for the mosses and the lichens to get to work on. And after, I don't know, 150, 200 years, you've got an array of different lichens on here. Using the wall and the different opportunities that the wall provides to grow for themselves. So you've got quite a variety of, grey leafy ones. I can see those. And then you've got crusty ones, some of which are on the top and have great big black fruits like wine gums on. They've got brown features as well. Yeah, the brown is the iron drawn out of the rock. They go right into the yeah. rock and bring iron out. They go in and out. bring stuff out and they change colour. There's a whole suite of lichens that like really, really strongly metalliferous environments. So there's specific things that grow on copper mine waste and things like that. Chemically, they are beginning to work at producing soil. The soil is being made here. And if you put your mind back 10,000 years to the end of the Ice Ages, this is what would have happened here. It's what's happening in many areas of the world in deserts at the moment. You get these living crusts of lichen and a bit of moss, and then things like the ferns and so on will come along. In thousands of years, you're developing a decent soil. Now, one of the other things that lichens do, and this is quite important, is... The cyanobacteria in lichens fix nitrogen from the air. Oh, I really like these clips, and very particularly that moment when Sean can't contain his enthusiasm for his sphagnums. And in fact, Twitter, one of the Twitter users, I think it was uh, Nicola Pritchford, picked up on exactly that moment when there's just pure joy to have found this very specific sphagnum growing. It's a good day out, and they're doing some great work up there, Mark, right? Absolutely, because I remember wandering along that ridge when I researched Fell Ranger originally, and that ridge between High Tove and High Seat, oh, Peewit's area. I can't imagine a Peewit going anywhere near it. It was up to <laughs> the waist in bog and most unpleasant. It was and a kind of a salt course. It, it? Oh, it was a salt <laughs> course. But now it is transformed. It's rather like the top of Kinder Scout in the Peak District, which was once a most horrendous place of bog. But now Peewit's is a happy place. Fell walkers can follow the lovely flag path and see nature being recovered. The bogs and the pools and everything about it looks like the future of many upland areas. A short selection of clips now about pubs and why they matter. First up, we hear from the great Melvin Bragg, painting a beautiful memory picture of his father sat at the bar of the family pub, the Blackamorian in Wigton. Next, Harrison Ward, 
aka Fell Foodie, talking about the fine tradition of the rural pub. Third, we have Will Rawling, noting the loss of farming community in his Ennerdale local. And finally, Charlotte Fairburn of Lowther Castle with her recommendation of the Farmer's Arms at Torva. One of the most lusting memory pictures I have is of him standing, leaning against the bar, the pub empty, myself having run down the stairs or younger slid down the banisters, glancing at him as I went out. He would usually turn to me with a kindly smile. That was all. But the picture in the bar held me. Its ancient solidity and the association with the past beyond the pub itself when men came together, as now, to pass the time, to seek and find company and warmth. And in their number and company, dignity often denied them to be part of the world with others of their kind. And that smile, no slickly assumed mask, just from the heart smile, which showed the man he was, contented in his own thoughts. It was a smile, sometimes replaced by a small nod of greeting, which met each customer. It said, we can make something of this life. We are all in this together. The way is to see it through together. It was recognition. I did used to love being in the pub, the social side, and it was an environment that I was, I was sad to leave, obviously, for different reasons for myself. I think when it becomes the living room and the, really the common room and everyone gets together and sharing their stories, it really is a fine tradition that I do hope does stay alive because there's been so many difficult times for the pub trade as of late and it's one that done right and have a good ale, fire on, nice dinner, it's a special place to be. I can remember when, you know, in my early teens, probably early 20s, I can remember when farming was by far the thing that everyone talked about. It was all about, have you gathered your sheep? Have you dipped? Oh, what sort of lambing term have you had? Have you clipped yet? All of these things. Everybody was talking Cumbrian dialect. And when we went into the pub, the whole of the crack was about farming. It was about sheep farming. If we go to the pub now, we'll probably smell a little bit of sheep and we have to sit on our own. <laughs> Which uh, I think that in itself has been... Possibly one of the things that I've found the most challenging, the fact that we are now not necessarily part of the community. We are somebody who is in that community without really being at the forefront of it. Life changes, nothing remains the same, but I do feel it's a great shame. If my grandkids can't have the same memories that I have of being a little toddler trailing about after my dad... I'm really interested in the farmer's arms at Tulva. I don't know whether you've been there. It's been taken over by Grisdale Arts. It's a super cool place. It's a really old building. And it's a very interesting dynamic of old and new. Adam Sutherland, who runs Grisdale Arts, he's a genius. And the food is delicious. They grow their own vegetable. It's really cool. From the bar side fire to the bracing outdoors now as we ponder the complex interactions between body and soul that take place on a walk or a fell run. First up, Melvin Bragg and Harrison Ward again respond to our quickfire question, where does your mind wander on a walk? Next, we hear from Chloe Thwaites and Jacob Tonkin about the sense of meditational flow that emerges when fell runners tackle tough challenges in wild places. Finally, Rob and Harriet Fraser consider the rewards that emerge when you dig deep. On a Lakeland walk, where do your thoughts wander? Oh, they just wander, that's the point. The whole point is that they're undirected. The whole point is that you let it happen. What you do is you set off walking and then it happens to you. This or that, big things, little things... It drifts through you, and that's, that's the whole point. I think it's the opposite for me, I think. My mind wanders a lot more 
when I'm not on the hilltops. And I think for me, it's the silence that I get sort of mentally and sort of cerebrally. I think that really is why I love being out there. It kind of shuts away those menial stresses of life, I think, being in the environment. So if anything, it's the opposite for me. My mind calms down, it slows, and I just feel really like I'm in the place I'm meant to be. I think it's very different to an experience of like walking in the lakes. You know, I, I grew up walking in the lakes with family and friends and your mind could wander off and you could chat chat about different things. But when you're running and you're going over quite difficult ground or, you're, you know, it's rocky or it's muddy or whatever it is, you are often alone. You're in a wild place. You're focused on the next metre in front of your feet. You are so in what I would call the zone and you're in your own flow, especially when you're running downhill or just on a really long run, I think that you go into a kind of state of meditation. I personally find it extremely therapeutic, and I think it just takes my head out of the everyday and just gives me a a bit of clarity and a little bit of realising how small we are. I think maybe it's an experience that as runners we all have at some stage in our running, and I think maybe that's why we then open up when we do meet a runner me and Danny were out and they were therapy sessions they weren't just runs (laughs) we were talking about all sorts so yeah I would say that it is a bit of a therapy yeah I mean for me it's a really hard thing to do fell running and I think a lot of it when you're out with people is the mutual respect that you are both capable of doing this feat and a lot of my best conversations with people have happened at two three o'clock in the morning in the dark going across the dodds on someone's Bob Graham and you are both on that par at the same level and it just brings out the openness and you know I try and be a very open person with the issues I've had in my life thinking it might help someone else bring their you know worries out and talk about it and I think you can only do that by achieving that level of respect with someone. And just going to that vulnerable place, I think it is a vulnerable place that we go to when you're digging deep and it's hard and you're not sure if you can make it and you've got someone there with you that's kind of egging you on. And I think that vulnerability allows you to become a little bit more open with how you're feeling and, and where you're at. You're just a tiny little dot in this big landscape and it, it, it does keep giving. You really feel the magic when it gets really hard as a walker or a camper when you're really, really cold or... I suppose it's the same for climbing when you just really got a challenge and you have to dig deep and uh, that's magic. There we go, lovely collection of clips there. So I pose the question to you, George, where does your mind wander on a walk? I think, unlike Melvin, I, I, I think they just wander. Some people say the mind's just clear. So I, I think mine does and then it fills with sort of random things and it's that undirected thing, you just let them flow. I think what matters is what you're not thinking about. Because you just, as soon as you're up there, suddenly you're no longer worrying about the fact the car's overdue for a service or the uh, garage door frame's rotting or you're well late for a deadline that you've got to finish next week for work. That just, you leave all that behind and suddenly you have this intense freedom. Like your feet, your thoughts can wander where they will. Absolutely. I endorse it exactly. Whenever I wander the fells or wander the fields, words come that you had never thought of, or thoughts come. Wordsworth and Harriet Martineau and all the writers of the past, they were great walkers, and that brought gifts beyond avarice that meant that they could relate to a place and relate to their own lives in a different way. So it brought out riches that are not available to you if you stay in the same setting. I would certainly credit 
walks, either short ones or long ones, with pretty much every good decision I've made, whether that's personal decisions or work decisions. And I mean, certainly if I'm working on a, a book project, if I've got a bit stuck, I'll go out for a walk. And honestly, I'm, time I get back, I've got three or four different solutions. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And, and you do wonder how much more productive the world would be if we all did a lot more walking. I mean, obviously not too much more walking or it wouldn't be at all productive, but yeah. your daily walk could be the thing that does it, I think. But a politician should do more walking, actually. Without a shadow of a doubt. And of course, Rory Stewart, famously, was a, a great walker, wasn't Absolutely. He? Well, yeah. remains one, I think. It, indeed, he does. I remember Barbara Castle was a keen walker. Is involved with the access movement. Well, she was one of the three politicians, I think, who was on that three-day stretch of the Pennine Way that opened it, I think. Is that right? Before yeah. it was opened. Yeah. There was all kinds of stuff to unpack in, particularly the podcast about the fell running. Some of it very different, I think, to how walkers interact with landscape because what we don't have in the same way i think is that hardship i think it's something quite primal in us i identify although i'm not a fell runner but you can do bits of a walk where it's a scramble or it's a bit more difficult or whatever and suddenly that focus you have to be completely focused on that and it's that flow and there's something very meditative about that when you just get into that zone and your your concentration is completely in the moment to get there people will tell you oh we'll get that plane to doko or something but you're not because your life doesn't depend on it <laughs> you know if you make the wrong decision on that crag or coming down that descent you're going to be in trouble and it's a world away from this kind of stresses the negative stresses that we normally kind of invent for ourselves at the beginning of the year i was up in glencoe doing some winter skills and i met a fantastic mountain leader there uh, called Johnny Walker. <laughs> he became a mountain leader when he was made redundant after years of working for Sainsbury's. And he said, you know, it was just a relentless treadmill of arbitrary targets and it just wore you down, you know. And then when he was made redundant, it was the best thing that happened to him because he thought, well, I love mountain. I'm going to make a career out of this. It's going to be a big cut in income, but I don't care. And he's never looked back. His family said, you're back. Your humour's back. You're with us. And a kind of stomach condition he had that was on drugs. He stopped taking the drugs. He didn't need them anymore. It all cleared up. It's... And this came a few times, didn't it? I mean, Chloe, with this remarkable story on that podcast that the clip there comes from who was in hospital right and she couldn't get out of bed she thought she was never going to walk again she got discharged started getting wheelchair ramps made at home getting back into the landscape and this defining run she did up Wernside I think was it or Ingleborough it kind of changed her life and again you've got this story of landscapes and how they play a role in healing which did come up a few times harrison ward fell foodie he is absolutely explicit about that coming to these fells has probably saved his life to farming now and a particular passion of yours mark and one of your chosen clips a moment at the historic farm at Townend in troutbeck with the national trust's emma wright when you got an answer to a long-standing question now, the third book you've got, which has Gates Shepherd's Guide on the front, I think I've heard about this one, and it's got smit marks and lug marks in it. I love this one because it's a really key farming text for anyone round here. So it's Gates Shepherd's Guide, published locally in 1879, and it's a guide to all of the smit marks and lug marks across the whole of Westmoreland, Cumberland and Lancashire. So you can see I've opened it on a particularly pertinent page for us, huh? which is the page that relates to Troutbeck, Westmoreland. So oh, yes. um, you can see there we've got six 
illustrations of yes. um, the same sheep oh. and then the individual marks marked on. So we've got to the top one there is our George Brown of Townend. Lug marks and smit marks, what are they? With the Herdwick sheep, they roam freely, but hopefully keep to their home heath or the area that they're brought up on. Um, but obviously it's really important to identify which sheep belongs to which farm, um, whether they go astray or indeed where they gather them in and get all of the sheep together. So this is the sort of unique identifiers, I suppose, for each farmer. It shows you the marks that are sort of painted on the side of the sheep there with the smith. You've got the B for brown, as you highlighted. And then the lug marks are cut into the ears. Lug is the Viking for law. They were obliged to do this. OK, Mark, so you were very excited by this discovery. <laughs> yes, I was indeed. Yes, researching the Ambleside Walking Companion, our most recently published book. We, I'm doing the Keswick Walking Companion at the moment, but anyway. Bit of a plug there, and I think we're allowed to do that on our own podcast. <laughs> I think we can. I um, picked up on these wall transitions on the ridge of Wandsfeld Pike, and the very first one I came upon had two capital letters on the right it said b and on the left it had f when you say wall transition these are these straight lines on a vertical lines yes. in a wall and they've got these initials carved into the rock yeah and the transitions were there because they had to build the ring enclosure for the common in one year and so they had different farms doing their own stretches so they all allocated and the highest point one was where the f and the b came together and in the gates shepherd's guide there on the page that emma opened up on there it was f which was forest it was mary forest at low house which was the next farm to town end with george brown boom boom i've got it i knew who those two farms were whose employees had built those bits of wall and it's the only time i've ever seen initials on a wall from one of your chosen clips, Mark, to one of mine, and then one that both of us picked um, independently. So first up, we'll hear from Sue Wilkinson, selecting a favourite passage from Eliza Lynn Linton's The Lake Country. And then from way back in January, and a very chilly Cat Bells, Simon Dunant, with an equally lovely quote from Hugh Walpole, expressing his deep love for Lakeland. I'd like to have climbed up Helvellyn with her. This is based on her description of the Helvellyn area in the Lake Country. So she goes through how the scenery looks, the rare plants she discovers in the rocks, but then I think most crucially how the scenery and, and the botany and everything make her feel. So she says, it's such a fine, rich sensation, that of wandering about these perilous places, so grand in their sublime loveliness, so magnificent in their dangerous beauty, that any amount of foolhardiness may be excused. It's worth whole years of tamer living in the plains, worth a generation time of living in the cities. It's like playing with a tiger of which we believe ourselves the master, but which at any time may turn against us and crush our bones in the play that has flashed out into wrath. I think it would just have been magical to, to spend time with her in the hills. To wind up the podcast, which has been absolutely magic, um, we've asked you, can you identify a passage that you think sums up the man? In 1934, there was a, a book that was published called The English Country, um, and it was published as a compilation of some of the, the local writers here in Cumbria on what they thought about the area. And 
these are the most fitting words that I think really sum up everything about what we've been talking about today. He says, When I stand on Escorse and look down to Eskdale, I make my proper obeisance to the Collingwoods, the Calverts, the Cassons, and the great company of ghosts behind them, from the author of Old Bob to Wordsworth, but I know something that they none of them can ever have known, how it feels to discover by a miracle that you are not homeless and wanderless, as you had once supposed, but on this spot your feet touch the ground, and the ground does not reject you, and until you die there is an acre of soil that is friendly and sib to you. I absolutely love that quote, that great company of ghosts. I love that idea, and I love this sense of finding an acre of soil that is sib to you, that lovely lost word. It doesn't there. reject you. This sense that S-cores, and he obviously meant the right S-cores rather than the false S-cores, the sense of getting high on the fells and realising that this whole landscape is filled with people from the past and that you are personally connected to them by the union of being there. The thing that unites both of those clips is that both of these people are largely forgotten about now. Extraordinary characters... I think you'd probably say Hugh Walpole. By and large, if you're a real Lakes lover, you probably come across the Harry's Chronicles, haven't you? But Eliza Lynn Linton, most people haven't got a clue. I was certainly in their number until I popped into the Keswick Museum and saw this fascinating exhibition and just thought, wow, what a life that is. And actually, that was a really nice podcast to record. Now, I know, George, you were going to pick up on another writer who you, you think been kind of yes, lost. Yes, in that vein, you know, W.T. Palmer is another writer who wrote a whole succession of books. For a while, he was the editor of the Felon Rock Climbing Club journal. Early ones, like the English Lakes, is he kind of rose round each of the lakes in turn. Pulls in all sorts of local knowledge. He came from farming background. He could speak in dialect to farmers as well as he could speak to editors or whatever. So he was comfortable with everybody. And he just really understood the landscape and wrote beautifully. And that book's illustrated with paintings by Heaton Cooper. So I mean, it's a thing of great beauty. Remarkable character, but again, very much forgotten. In fact, Sheila Richardson, who was a friend of Wainwright's and a, a journalist, was charged to do something about him. She didn't know anything about him, and they started reading some of this stuff and were so taken with it, she wrote a book called The Forgotten Man of Lakeland. But then Eliza Lynn Linton is the same thing, isn't it? You know, these remarkable writers, and oh. they've disappeared. The Lake Country, I occasionally keep flicking into it. She wrote that book with her husband, William, before the advent of the Ordnance Survey. So lots of the place names she refers to must have been verbally come across yeah, to her. Yeah. So she has something like Maiden Moor is Maiden Bower, as if yeah. it was Welsh. Right. Nathdale Fell, that's High Rig. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and Castle Howe, uh, Keswick, is Castlet. So there's various yeah. things that she yeah. must have heard in conversation yeah. that weren't precisely what they became on all the survey maps. William's art, because that's the thing I suppose I relate yeah. to most, yeah. is quite faithful. And it's sort of 80 or 90 years before Wainwright. So we're seeing the future by looking at that book. He mentions William Linton, like Thomas Allen, who's another 19th century artist that he was admired. Yeah. I wonder, actually, why some of these people have been forgotten is largely due to Wainwright, in a way. Because I think what he did was do something very different. 
They were in the tradition, I think, of the early guidebook writers, going back to Thomas Gray. And it was almost like not the Grand Tour of Europe, but it became the Tour of the Lake District. And they would go to places and they would describe them very poetically, whatever. They were writing in this romantic way of describing the experience. People coming to the lakes were moneyed people and they could pay a guide to take them. So they didn't need that practical guidebooks weren't guidebooks like they are now but what Wainwright did I mean one of the things he says isn't he kept meeting people who were lost on the fells and that was one of his reasons he gives for writing the pictorial guides he's great genius he's still got that romantic writing he's still captured all of that and the drawings but something much more practical and with the coming of the railways and more people coming up who couldn't afford guides whatever else these were guidebooks they could use and perhaps they pushed everybody else aside a little bit in terms of what people were buying and now Great works that we look back to, but they've been largely forgotten. And Yes. Oh, Hugh Walpole is the same. Harris Chronicles, forgotten after the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the Beatles generation lost all the music that came yeah. before. Not exactly, yeah. but you have... Things go out of fashion and can disappear. Well, from two great writers to another, we circle back to Alfred Wainwright again and a few clips that pay homage to him. First up, we've got your friend Mark, Debbie North, reflecting on the fact that she embarks upon the coast-to-coast walk because of AW's prose. Next, as part of our 100th episode, we asked various friends of the podcast to pick a piece of writing that summed up the magic of Lakeland for them. And uniquely, three different people picked a single AW quote. Uh, And full disclosure, it's the quote I would have picked too if I'd been asked by the producer. So you'll hear from Jeff Appleyard, Rebecca Anderson and Wainwright archivist Chris Butterfield before Jonathan Humble reads one of the finest bits of writing, I think, about Lakeland. But what was so special about the coast-to-coast walk? When you've read wainwright's words about the coast to coast and he makes it quite romantic in the feel of the walk you get a certain passion from him and you want to have some of that passion of your own and to create your own memories and the fact that it's two weeks it takes two weeks of your life and in that two weeks you learn so much about yourself and you learn so much about the people that you're walking with my name is Jeff Appleyard. I'm a retired biomedical scientist, but I've now retrained as a Cumbria tourist guide, and I live in Flukeborough. The piece of writing I've chosen is Alfred Wainwright's end piece in his seventh book, The Western Fells, where he's signing off after a 13-year project that he's delivered within one week of his original deadline. And he's writing a farewell almost to the fells, and I feel it speaks to anyone that's climbed a Lakeland mountain, whether it's just one or all 214, One day you will not be able to climb that mountain, but it will still be there. I'm Rebecca Anderson, and I'm a Lake District blogger, and I live in Ambleside. The piece of writing that I have chosen is by Alfred Wainwright, and it sums up for me just the beauty of being up in the hills, and especially being solo. My name is Chris Butterfield. I am a Wainwright archivist and author. I'm also the creator of the Alfred Wainwright Books and Memorabilia website and Facebook group, which focuses on Wainwright's publishing and printing history. The piece of writing I have chosen is a well-known paragraph by Alfred Wainwright. It features in the closing comments to his final Lakeland pictorial guide, The Western Fells. As I have gotten older, I have become more aware of the passage of time and my own mortality. Recreating some of Wainwright's journeys in my new book, Wainwright Memories, highlights how quickly lives change, but the Lake District remains timeless. 
I think this is why Wainwright's final passage in Book 7 resonates with me more than ever. The fleeting hour of life of those who love the hills is quickly spent, but the hills are eternal. Always there will be the lonely ridge, the dancing beck, the silent forest. Always there will be the exhilaration of the summits. These are for the seeking, and those who seek and find while there is still time will be blessed both in mind and body. Well, that's a lovely reading of a beautiful quote there. Uh, as I said, if I'd have been asked, I probably would have picked that quote. I think it has everything, and I think it's incredibly beautifully written. And it's, it's the kind of quote that actually people pick for their funerals or their loved ones' funerals. I was going to ask the two of you, if you had been asked that question, so to pick a piece of literature that sums up the magic of Lakeland for you, what would it be? And we'll start with you, George. I think I would go with Wainwright again, but it would be a different quote. And it's the piece that he's inspired to write from the top of Scorfell Pike that he calls his soliloquy. And he poses the question, you know, well, why? Why do men, women too now, (laughs) he wasn't too good at acknowledging that, but why do men climb mountains? And what he concludes, I think, is quite beautiful. They find something in these wild places that can be found nowhere else. It may be solace for some, satisfaction for others. The joy of exercising muscles that modern ways of living have cramped, perhaps, or a balm for jangled nerves in the solitude and silence of the peaks, or escape from the clamour and tumult of everyday existence. It may have something to do with man's subconscious search for beauty, growing keener as so much in the world grows uglier. It may be a need to readjust his sights, to get out of his narrow groove and climb above it to see wider horizons and truer perspectives. Absolutely lovely. Same question to you, Mark. Yes, because we didn't get a chance, did we? We were never asked what our our lovely quote was. So what would yours have been? A piece of writing that sums up the magic of Lakeland for you. Harry Griffin had a wonderful way with words. And in Mountain Lakeland, right at the beginning, the biggest and most splendid gifts of nature in the length and breadth of our land are the hills of the English Lake District, aloft on their summit ridges or perched on their plunging crags or solitary, perhaps beside a lonely tarn, a man may gulp life to the full or even be reborn. Dwarfed by the cloud-shadowed heights, he discovers a new perspective and sees himself for what he is. Humbled, he achieves a new stature. A man is at his best in the hills. Let's get back to our clips and a shift back in time from Wainwright and the Great Walking Age back to the entrance of new wealth into the lakes from the Merchant Princes of Northern England, as explained at Aeroforce by National Trust curator Harvey Wilkinson. Harvey, you mentioned about these industrialists, and these really intrigue me. Uh, I know uh, Beatrix Potter's grandfather was an industrialist. Who are these people, and what were they seeking to achieve here? It's an interesting question. A lot of our visitors here today, we know, are flocking here on holiday from the industrial conurbations of Manchester, Liverpool and Leeds. Their ancestors were working for the mill owners. So in a sense, it's the epicentre of industrial capitalism in the world, Manchester, Liverpool and Leeds, created vast amounts of wealth. And if you think of the Lake District, it's right on the doorstep. 
with the fashion for picturesque scenery, the newly revalued English scenery. This isn't the Grand Tour, this is a local. People did what villa builders do. And you think of the word village, you know, think of a Roman villa. It's just the same. It means the country residence of a city dweller. It's suburban. Again, distinct from the feudal aristocracy who follow a different calendar. They don't come on the summer holidays. They follow the London season, the hunting season as we've got here. The people building villas here, by the time the railway comes, certainly are coming for the weekends or the summer holidays. This is about the consumption of leisure. These are the nouveau riche. A 19th century word for them were the merchant princes of northern England. A good example of the Marshall family. Now, they have two huge villas on Ullswater, Holsteads and Patterdale at the other end. Actually, John Marshall was friends with Wordsworth through Wordsworth's sister, and Wordsworth helped guide John Marshall's acquisitions a little bit because he was sympathetic to Wordsworth's vision for landscape, if you like. Those two villas belong to a single family who are making their money in flax. You think, I like this, look at this beautiful, quiet, rustling leaves. The money came from the biggest single room in the world, which was the Temple Mills in Leeds. If you see a picture of it, it's terrifying. It's huge. Thousands of people toiling away, spinning flax. The surplus money is building holsteads, these beautiful, elegant houses for the sake of the scenery, again, as, as Wordsworth put it. Wordsworth writes about the coming of tourism in his writings. Wordsworth is such an astute observer of that, and of course he grows up with the coming of this merchant villa landscape. He's schooled in Windermere at Hawkshead. He calls himself the boy of Windermere, and he sees these villas appearing. And he, he says something quite astute. I use this phrase a lot in trying to understand these landscapes. And he's referring back to around the year of his birth, all the time in his guide to the lakes. He says the Lake District was without the signs of ancient grandeur. And that seems an odd thing to say, because we look around this place, it seems grand, it seems ancient. He's describing something missing, which is not missing for the rest of the country. And it tells us a bit about what happens when tourism comes to the lakes, but also the reason why people weren't coming to the lakes in the early 18th century. And what he means specifically is it lacks the built edifices of the feudal aristocracy. That's what we call today the stately homes, the monasteries and then the ruined monasteries and the castles and then the ruined castles. Now these things... The lake doesn't have them because the feudal aristocracy have all built their houses in the fertile plains of the Eden Valley and around the lake district where the fat land is. They stick their tenants and their serfs and their monastic workers into the massive to try and eke a living out up here. But they don't build, by and large, in there. If you think you're a tourist of, say, 1720, you're not looking for scenery. You're looking for the great houses, the castles, the antiquities the psychological building blocks of nation-state from the mindset of, say, 1720. There's nothing here worth looking at. That situation then gets suddenly flipped by the picturesque movement that you're talking about. A landscape which is at once empty of the signs of ancient grandeur suddenly is full of interest for those people. There we go, Harvey Wilkinson. I could have listened to him all day. What a fount of knowledge. There was barely anything that he didn't know about. And he gave us this fascinating chunk of history, which doesn't often get spoken about. You know, I think a lot of us know a bit about those early days of tourism, don't we? The Thomas West era. But there's this big chunk where, of course, yeah, this new money starts coming in. And a lot happens politically at that point, because not only do you have all the mill money coming in, they start building these villas. And the counter movement to that, prominent in that, people like Wordsworth, uh, Beatrix Potter and so on, come and see this danger that these villas are effectively 
moving all around the lakeland edges that's it they're sprawling aren't they kind of urban sprawl within this landscape that they love and the birth of the conservation movement begins so so much packed into this very short period of time of the many things that i hadn't really clocked before that episode beatrix bodder i kind of forgotten but she's one of them. Yeah. Yes. She, she's the granddaughter of one of those merchant princes, if you like. Uh, yes. She would come on holiday at Ray Castle. That, that was probably the biggest and most flamboyant of the fillers, really. And that was the prism through which she first saw the Lake District. And ultimately, she turned it all around. Yes. Ended up buying vast tracts of the Lake District to keep it out the hands of the property developers and embraced farming. Herdwick Farmer, president-elect of the Herdwick Breed Association, as I think Will Rawling said in, mm. in his piece. Yes, George Trevelyan was another one who yeah. bought land specifically to stop afforestation, for example. You imagine Great Langdale full of conifers. Yeah. It would yeah. have happened. Yeah. Individuals who actually yeah. see the danger. And, of course, at the bottom of it all is money. Yeah. yeah. What treasury you are forfeiting just for short-term profit and they've they stood against it and it might not have happened with beatrice potter due to lichens because she (laughs) she was in this quite straight jacketed family with a mother quite overbearing and socially aspiring and had a life mapped out for her she was going to find a suitable match and marry her off as a way of climbing and Beatrix Potter didn't really want anything to do with that. She's a very accomplished artist, obviously, but, you know, started by nature drawings, botanical drawings, and became quite an accomplished amateur mycologist and started to theorise about the origin of lichens. And it was still quite a new field, I think, lichens. And although her parents didn't really understand what she was doing, her uncle did. Her uncle was a, a prominent chemist, got that she was pretty scientific and this was good and introduced her to George Murray who was the director of botany at Kew Gardens and and with his help what they did she actually wrote a paper which she submitted to the Linnean Society to see if they would publish it now she wasn't allowed to present the paper because women weren't allowed to be admitted to Linnean Society meetings and I think the director of Kew Gardens had been quite off with her quite misogynistic dismissed her she was hoping she'd do better at the Linnean Society. And the paper got knocked back. She seems to have got disheartened by this. And so rather than going back and reworking it and resubmitting it and quite possibly forging a career as a scientist, she fell back on some design she'd done for greetings cards of animals in um, comic dress and whatever else. And as a result of that, she ended up producing a book, which was Peter Rabbit. And um, made a success that way. And, of course, with the money from Peter Rabbit, she bought Hilltop and the, and the rest is history. But had a paper been published, it's one of those sliding doors moments that might not have happened. You know, the property developers might have been all over Monk Coniston and Troutbeck Valley and everywhere else that she bought to protect. And another of your choices now, Mark, from a designed landscape to an industrial landscape, deep inside the echoing old man of Coniston with Mark Hatton. Well, we've made our way beyond that great cavity, further up a definite incline with the rail track, which has brought us up to the very crest to the top of Spian Cop, and we've got still the mistiness, but boy, what an amazing place. Can you tell us a bit more here, Mark? Yeah, so we're now in the Spian Cop workings themselves, and we can look down to where we were earlier, 180 feet below us. All these workings were connected up during the early 20th century or middle 20th century to allow rock from here to be lowered down several levels and then extracted further down the hill 
where it was lowered down on the aerial ropeways. But the men who worked up here are working on a very high and very exposed face of the old man. Many of them probably would have spent the night up here. Some of them might have commuted backwards and forwards from the village, but uh, that's a hell of a commute. Working up here must have been extraordinary. And there's one particular story that took place in 1937 that I think illustrates the severity of the conditions they faced. So the men were working in here one day and they were aware that it was snowing outside. In fact, it was snowing so heavily, quite a lot of them decided it's time to go. We need to get down the mountain because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. Two men decided to work on and earn a bit more money. They then eventually themselves decided time to go, four o'clock in the afternoon, starting to get dark. They went outside and they were horrified to find just how deep the snow was and how almost blizzard conditions it were. They set off down the mountain and then they were caught in an avalanche. Both of them were tumbled over and over in the snow and one of them managed to free himself of the snow, got up but could not find his work colleague, looked around for him, couldn't find him in the deep snow, was getting terribly cold, so he went down the hill to raise the alarm. The miners had one initial look for that man but couldn't find him and they decided they had to go back to the village to get some more clothing and get some more lights and get some more volunteers to help them. They went back down to the village and they came up in the dark, 7.30 at night, and with lanterns, much of their warm clothing was literally dressing themselves in hessian sacks and they were determined to find this chap. But the wind was howling and the snow was falling. It was really difficult to find him. But thankfully they did. This man had been under the snow for hours and hours. But he managed to have his hand just poking out of the snow. And they found him. They carried him down in a very frozen and distressed state. They warmed him up by the fire at their Saddleston bank. And then carried him down to the village. And he did survive. But um, it just reflects the severity of the conditions working up here, the risks they took, but also their desire to look after each other. Those men were all prepared to risk their lives looking for and saving one of their colleagues, for which one of them was awarded the George Medal, uh, which is the highest award for miners rescuing miners in the time. That's a, a clip there, Mark, from inside the Speen Cop workings and a seasonal tale of 1937 heroism. Always great to be out with the um, campaigner now, Mark Hatton, doing the right thing for Thelmere there. But um, wh- why did you pick that, Mark? Oh, God. When I think of the labours, the challenges, the endeavours, the selflessness working in those quarries, in those caverns that they were creating... It's fearful. Yeah, that was um, probably one of the most dramatic moments in Country Strides history, I think, going in there, really inside the old man. I mean, absolutely fantastic. And uh, just a little safety notice to put in that we went in with somebody who knew what they were doing with all the correct safety equipment. What a fabulous place. And now for something different from the slate desolation of the old man to a set of clips that celebrate nature and landscapes and taking time to enjoy both. First up, we're back on the North York Moors with Debbie North, where a curlew sounds right on call. Next, we hear from Fell Foodie about slowing down in the outdoors. Next, we return to Ennerdale with Will Rawling to reflect on life in a slower era. Then Jen Hall recalls swimming in Eskdale. <laughs> 
Duat Enlath with Roy Henderson to bathe in birdsong. And then finally, two clips about falling in love with Lakeland. First, Melvin Bragg talks about Binzi, and second, Eric Robson describes that view up Watsdale. That was wonderful just a moment ago. I heard a cuckoo. Did you hear it, Deb? I think it's the first one of the season I've heard, yeah. Gosh. It's great. And of course, have got the little birds flitting about there. Grouse, <laughs> primarily around here. I do miss being up on the fells above Naby, where be hearing the curlews now and the skylark and seeing the oyster catcher. And again, it's that, just stopping and listening. We took... A part of the charity that we do, Access the Dales, which you know I'll talk about later on, we took a party of visually impaired out to the nature reserve at Ingleborough. It was part of this project called Wild Ingleborough. And there was a lady who was totally blind. And she said, you know, I can't see anything, but I can feel it. She's like, I can hear the birds. And listening to her, it was like her reading poetry. Her descriptions was just awe-inspiring and quite moving, to be honest, to listen to somebody that can't see it, but seeing it with her ears. And I don't think we use our ears enough when we're outdoors. We get our heads down and we, we march along, take time and stop and listen to nature and look at nature through all your senses. I can hear a... What's that? That was a curlew. I heard them. Right on cue. (laughs) Right on cue. The mic picked it up, but it was there. So often in life, we're rushing around. We're really busy. We're just rushing to the next place for work or for play or always got to be in places. And even in the hills, I find that I race to the top of the mountain sometimes. I want to be there and head down again. But being quite still getting these bits out, crafting a bit of lunch in the outdoors, even if it is a flask or a food flask, something you made the night before, just reheating it in the outdoors. Food just always tastes better in that environment, and it's just a nice little nod. Victorian traditions are even further back when it was perhaps more campfires and foraging. I can remember going up the road on the back of the tractor with my dad where we were going fencing or we would be going to Mendelandrain or something, and it would think absolutely nothing if a farmer came the other way on his tractor they would stop in the middle of the road and there would be no more traffic. They would stop there for at least an hour, just having a general conversation about everything in general. I remember as, as a young guy thinking to myself, this isn't terribly productive. But when I look back, I just think to myself, what an idyllic time that was. This is particularly wonderful. We've come along the path in the bare of the trees, passing Red Bank, the ruin of a farmhouse with the bare base of the house. We've come along a little bit further, evidence of uh, wild garlic, ransoms and uh, pig nut. And we've come out beside a lovely pool, a broad stretch of the river, not too deep. And on a day like today, so inviting. Did you ever dip in here, Jen? I certainly did. I used to bring the children... We'd come along here and we'd cross over the river to the far side and further up is a lovely pool called Turn Dub, which is deep enough to jump in, swim in. There's a sort of hollowed out rock slide and you'd sit on the top of that and just whoosh down into the water. And 
disturbed trout. There was lots of really lovely big trout in there as well. It was a marvellous place to come. You could spend the whole afternoon with a picnic and lounging and talking and sharing secrets. So what diversity of wildlife have you observed here? I've seen deer, plenty of deer. Roe deer, that would be? Yes, roe deer. Fox, squirrels, red ones, beautiful birds. Did once see a kingfisher, but only the once. Owls, yes. We had an owl at Fisherground, a barn owl. Uh, that was a beautiful sight at night, seeing that taking off. That was lovely. Yeah, one of the things I do with the local school groups when I take them out is we stop in the woodlands and just listen to see how many birds and different noises we can hear. And then we stop out in the open fell or in a grazed pasture field and try and listen to the different noises. And you can hear yourself in the background, there's just loads of bird noise, there's loads of wildlife, there's loads of life. Whereas if it's grazed really heavily, we don't get those sort of noises, that sort of life. You can hear it now. The great ex-fell wanderer uh, Alfred Wainwright writes very movingly about his Orist Head moment uh, where he discovers Lakeland when he's a young man. And there's a lovely chapter in your book about Binsey, which we've already spoken about. That's where we are on our virtual walk. But you go up there and quite a kind of spiritual experience, it would seem to me, because you didn't have a, a relationship with the lakes particularly at that point, but suddenly something changes there. Yes, I don't know what it was, but it did. There's a sheepfold at the top, broken down sheepfold at the top of Binsey. You see right down to the mm-hmm. castle at the other end of Dernwater, the old uh, Celtic castle. And I used to like going there. And it was to do with sunset to the west was the sea, of course, and the fantastic sunset. And then they were hitting the skidor and they're finding the iron ore. And so the skidor was all bronze. And, uh, and I just felt something different. I felt sort of part of it and attached to it, and uh, yes. When did you first come to Wasdale? 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Right. It would be you know, routine, run-of-the-mill news report. But uh, Wasdale became a very serious part of my life. You can't pull up at the mouth of the Wasdale Valley and see that range of mountains all around you and not be impressed by that, mm-hmm. you, know. Mm-hmm. you know. However posh you may be in Manchester or Liverpool or whatever, this beats you, hands down. And because of that, I fell in love with the place. Simple as that. Wasdale beats you, hand down. That's Eric Robson there on Falling in Love with Wasdale. And then we've got these kind of origin stories. So we know about Wainwright, don't we, on Orist Head. And... Melvin has his falling in love moment on Binsey and then Eric drives into Wasdale and, and that's it, he's sold, he's home now. A lot of people talk about this moment, don't they, where they do fall in love with the place or, or their relationship with the landscape changes in quite a dramatic way, which I think is more what Melvin was getting at, wasn't it? But, I mean, did you have a moment like this, Mark? Was there a, a moment where you thought, yeah, this is it? Or was it, was it a kind of slow burn love affair? I trot it back to my early days when we had summer holidays in the Yorkshire Dales. So I experienced fells from there first. But my mother had one or two romantic books on the Lake District. So I remember we had occasional trips and no walking involved because my parents weren't into that sort of thing. But we drove to Langdale and I beheld the Langdale Pikes from the valley. For the first time, I went, wow. And my first trip with my mountaineering club was to Langdale 
And I remember climbing on Raven Crag and then going up Jack's Rake on Paley Arc. And wow, I wanted those fells forever. What about you, George? I remember it really clearly. I was different. I'd, I'd lived in Newcastle for years. I'd been a musician, hadn't done any fell walking, didn't really know Cumbria at all. And my wife Sandy was off a job over here, which was a great job. So we moved over here. Fairly soon, your eyes are drawn to the mountains, so you can't ignore them for long. So I was kind of thinking I might go up there. But that deciding moment was meeting some friends in Pooley Bridge. We went to Horswater, and Lucy had lived in the lakes. We were looking up at Rickendale Edge. It looked amazing. It looked completely unconquerable to me at that point. But she told me about the Roman road that ran over the top. And it, to me, at that point, seemed so completely implausible. And I Probably just, still is. Yeah, I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought, I've got to go up there. And it just became a sort of obsession. And I was going through guidebooks trying to find one that had that walk in and I found one that was going to take me up Rigandale Edge. And I remember it vividly, that walk. It's one I've done lots of times since because it still really means a lot to me. But and this is going up Rigandale Edge, is it? Yeah. Rough cracks, yeah. long style ridge. I think, I think mm. it was just that thing. I had been in a band, it had been everything to me. When we were sort of playing or creating, I got this kind of wonderful sense of liberty and release. Not all the time, sometimes the guitar was out of tune and everything, but when everything came together, you sought. And I'd retrained. I'd retrained in IT. I'd learned things about myself I didn't know. I, I was quite practical. I could problem solve. I was actually earning money for the first time in my life. I was newly married. Everything was good, but there was something was missing, you know. And it was that, that other side of me, the creative, romantic one, the, the one that could lose himself for hours in the warm oscillations of a guitar chord or something. You know, that needed space to breathe, and I didn't have it, and I didn't know what to do. And the minute... I set foot on Rickendale Edge. Suddenly I thought, hang on. That same sense of liberty and release is you got up a little bit and you could see Hawes Water and you start to see what looks like a huge volcanic crater with blow water there. And you get up and then suddenly you're having a scramble and you're up the long style at the end. And then I got to the top and, and, and you know, the Roman Road thing was in my head. And I think... I don't know, maybe my imagination had been a bit starved of late and it was perhaps a bit <laughs> cognitive overload, but the, the clack came down. And then I thought I could hear marching. <laughs> and I thought, and I thought, no, I can't. I can hear marching, but for two steps. And then out of the clag, these figures, two columns, started materialising. I didn't know whether to run or stay rooted to <laughs> It was really quite disappointing when you realised the spears were trekking poles and their armour was Gore-Tex or whatever. <laughs> but never, ever since have I seen fellwalkers marching like that. I don't know if they were service people or whatever, but I mean, it was quite incredible. Uh, the only time I've ever seen a golden eagle was on the Rough Crags Ridge. In other words, that place is special, isn't it? And it remains, doesn't it? That valley... Even for true disciples of the Lake District, there's something about that, isn't it? And I guess it's because it's kind of remote and there's one building in it, which is a great building in its own right. Everywhere around that side and all those approaches... Just the history, if you know about the Dram Village yeah. and everything else, it, it's got a kind of atmosphere to it, hasn't it? Um, and I was going to ask you, George, actually, uh, missed out talking about it earlier on, but you've got quite a nice story about your first interaction also with Wainwright. Uh, oh, yeah. This is at Kendall Museum, I believe. Well, so. this was, I bought this guidebook. It wasn't long after that. I think I'd done maybe the Old Man of Coniston or whatever, but I've heard the name Wainwright, but it didn't really mean much to me. But I realised it was held in a certain reverence. We had a friend, Muriel, who um, 
was curator at Kendall Museum. Her main name is Muriel Wainwright. She's no relation, but she was constantly having to explain this to people. And we went to see her and she was having this conversation with this couple. So, no, no, I'm no relation, but yes, yes, we do have some of his artefacts in his display cabinets. <laughs> and there were a pair of his old boots, his pipe, and a pair of old socks, walking socks. And this couple were kind of looking at these as if they were religious artefacts. <laughs> it's amazing. So I thought, I thought, what is it about Wainwright? My early interactions with those guides, I remember, I was still living mainly down in London at the time. Whenever I'd saved up enough money, I'd come up for a few days and I would be on the tube, totally different world, with my copies of, of Wainwright looking at, I guess the artwork and the interaction of the artwork with prose transported to a happy place, you know, to the place that, that I wanted to be. And then they become the guidebook on the fells. But then after that, in the bath at the end of the night, rereading what yeah, I'd just yeah. done. I had a really nine experience. When I, when I finished the Wainwrights, my 214 was, was cats to cam. It was a beautiful day, really sunny. Sat for quite a long time on the summit. And this bunch of young people came up. What I had, I had this ridiculous pipe that Sandy had made for me, cardboard pipe. She had 214 in a puff of smoke coming out of the pipe. So I, I took that photograph. Oh this is well beyond the call of duty. Absolutely. I think Chris Butterfield wants to borrow it when he, when he finishes. But this lad came over and said, can I ask what the pipe's about? Again, he heard the name. He didn't know much about Wainwright, but he said, well, what's special? And I got my copy of the Eastern Fells out and started showing him. And his face lit up. Never seen anything like it. And uh, when he went, he goes, I'm going to get that book. I'm going to get them all. And you just felt like you passed on a bit of magic. I love this idea of the reverence to the socks, which yeah. is really pushed to extremes and perhaps slightly beyond them, is my mind <laughs> on that. But... And the Timson boots. <laughs> Arriving at the end of our play out to 2023, a selection of clips here from the top of Helm Crag and the question that we posed for our big 100th birthday edition. What is the magic of Lakeland? So you'll hear from our guests on that walk. Langdale lad, Bill Burkett. Artists Rob and Harriet Fraser. Next, we'll hear from Harrison Ward reflecting on a place that doesn't conform to the ways of the world. And finally, 90-year-old Gordon Bambra noting that the lakes may feel small, but it's big if you get lost. So many things. Um, I think I've said, you know, it's, it's my home. Or I regard it as my home. So wherever I go in the world, I always want to come back here. Uh, I think for me and uh, my photography, it's about changing light, changing seasons. I mean, there are no two days the same in the Lake District. In fact, there's no two hours the same. It's, it changes the whole time, and that, that's a real magic end of this place. Now, Harry, pass you on to this notion, what is the magic? Gosh, and you've asked about that personally, and I think everything that Bill said, I would say exactly the same. It changes. It's never the same experience twice to be out here in the hills Camping out has been a big thing for me over the years and watching the moon rise, being under the stars, watching the sunrise um, and being out in a high place, for me, that is a magical time. And there's something else that is a bit more contemporary, which is, you know, you talk about what is the magic of the place as if what is it that we love about it that makes our hearts sing. But there's something else about this place that so many people care about it and that's part of its magic, that so many people have worked here looked after it, continue to look after it and there's constantly magic happening with people who are doing really good things for this place to 
help keep communities thriving and, and help the diversity and ecosystems improve because they're in a bit of a bad state generally. So um, it's really nice to see the exciting, good, positive stuff happening. What is the unique magic of Lakeland? I think it's got to be the people, hasn't it? It's got to be the people. Again, as you, as you feature so much on this podcast as well, the stories that weave in, the history, the artisanal nature of some of the crafts that are still surviving in this area. And I think it's often joked in Cumbria, isn't it, how we're a bit behind the times sometimes. You know, we just heard the war ended, that sort of stuff. But in a way, that's kind of its magic, I think, the fact it doesn't always conform to the ways of the world in a way. And it kind of is somewhere you can escape and things just get back into their place. And there's so much more to life than sometimes the modernities that we, we get used to. And you see when people come up here sometimes, they're looking out for the takeaway options or someone to deliver to the door within a couple of hours and yet over here it's like we don't do it that way you know it's a slow life almost and it's a slow life for good reason i think it's the best place in the world i think once i'd walked here and then i thought we'd try other places like scotland wales we even went to nepal and um, and south america but they were all a bit disappointing when i came back this was still the best I don't know whether it's just because it's, it's just a nice, nice size. It's only about 30 mile by 30 mile, I think. But in that area, it's absolutely wonderful. Actually, Gordon, you hit uh, the nail on the head there about the scale of, and the size of the Lake District. It's not big. It is big and it isn't big. You can stand on top of a summit and if you've been lucky enough to walk in lots of different places, you can imagine yourself on all the other summits around you. And yet, on any walk, you can do a walk 10 times, 20 times, and you'll find a different rock or a different crag or a different way the light's behaving. And I would never get to know the whole place. I don't think so. It'd take a few lifetimes. I suppose it is quite small in scale, but it's, it's about proportion, really. It's just everything is right, isn't it? You know, you've got the fields, the stone houses, the tarns, the lakes and the fells, and somehow they fit perfectly. That's a wonderful thing to me about it. It feels paradoxically big and small at the same time. You can stand on the top of Helvellyn, which we're looking across at now, and see pretty much all the edges. Uh, you can see Scotland to the north, you can see Morecambe Bay to the south, you can see the far mountains away to the west, and, and you know you can see it disappearing to the east towards the Pennines as well. So it's all there. But then to actually get out into that space, you realise there's an awful lot of up and downs. There's an awful lot of valleys between you and the edges. It might be small, but it's big if you get lost. <laughs> Can I pick up on something? Gordon, I think talking about this, comparing it to Nepal, I've never heard Nepal called disappointing before. So, you know, that's quite... You could almost put that in the poster for the Lake District. Uh, I went to Nepal, it was disappointing. Come to the Lake District. <laughs> Rob Fraser there, considering a new marketing campaign for the Lake District. The question we were pondering, of course, was what is the special magic of the Lake District, which is baked into the reason why we do this podcast. We're endlessly trying to explore that. And of course, there isn't a single answer, is there? But some of the themes that came up from that podcast were were the scale, this TARDIS-like thing that happens where it is small, but it's kind of massive. I loved what Harriet said, which is there's so much care for this landscape from so many people that that forms this shell around it in a way, which I thought was really astute and lovely. And then that sense of change as well, that came across, didn't it? It's never the same, so it's impossible to get bored. And I love this quote from Harriet, and I think this sums up the magic of Lakeland for me. She says, 
I'll never get to know the whole place. It would take several lifetimes. In every occasion you go to the same summit, it will never be the same view. The play of light, the conditions, the people you meet. Everything about the fells is full of humanity and wildness. What a wonderful combination. In Scotland, it's amazing mountains, but they're so extensive. The Lake District is wonderfully compact. I think Chris Bunnington said it may not be the most beautiful place in the world, but it's as beautiful as anywhere in the world. But for me too, there's something else. W.G. Collingwood said, the unique spirit of a place owes as much to layers of memory and cultural heritage as it does to the strata of the rock. The Celtic legends, King Arthur, Dunmail, were almost the same legend, really. The hilltop memorials, the drowned villages, there's so much that has inspired writers and artists. There's a kind of otherness to the Lake District too, as well in Cumbria. And I think for centuries it stood apart. As Harvey Wilkins was saying, nobody built in the Lake District, they built around it. Anglo-Saxons never conquered it. It's not in the Doomsday Book. It was still an independent Celtic kingdom then. When the Normans annexed it to England, nobody really went into the fells. And it was really the tourists, wasn't it, that invaded. Probably those, my, my vision of the uh, Roman legionnaires turning into fell walkers was kind of what happened in between. There were centuries where it was just shepherds and farmers. And I think it's always felt other you know, it stood apart from the rest of Britain and it is somewhere different with virtues of self-reliance and no fuss, no pretense, nothing like that is tolerated. And just a closeness to nature, which of course is what Wordsworth found here. Now, I have challenged the two of you to think about your favourite walk of 2023. So this is a, a Lakeland walk you really loved. If you can tell me about that and why you picked it. So we start with you, Mark. What was your favourite Lakeland walk of 2023 and why? There has been some wonderful days because I've been researching the Keswick Walking Companion. So there's been a great focus on that. From Buttermere up onto Crag Hill and down to Causey Pike and on to Barrow and then weaving my way through Portinskelta Keswick. A linear journey based on the bus service, Honister Rambler bus service. What a wonderful walk. I just loved it. Going up onto Whitelist Pike, this marvellous view, looking back over Buttermere and Crummet Water and the backdrop of High Style. I can remember meeting a, a young lass on Causey Pike whose dad loved Causey Pike and she'd always wanted to climb it. So that was her day remembering her dad. And it's wonderful when you can meet somebody on a summit who's having a poignant moment and they're overjoyed to share it with somebody else. So I was able to tell her the important point about Corsi Pike because you can link two cats together. Do you know this, George, the two cats? No. Yeah, cat bells and cats to camera in straight alignment. A really great walk, that one. Uh, George, your favourite walk of 2023? Well, I mean, there are several, but I think the one that will really stick in my memory is that I went well outside of my comfort zone, Pillar Rock. I'm not a climber, that's sort of beyond my capabilities. But then I found Grey Mooney Mountaineering was offering guided, roped guided scrambles to fell walkers who wanted to step out of their comfort zone. My friend Nikki, who I did uh, Pinnacle Ridge with had to drop out but uh, a friend of hers Jen Hellier who I think knew Graham she'd been worked in uh, Wasdale Mountain Rescue so she'd done a bit of climbing but not a lot so we did it together with Graham leading and there's this 
last bit, you're going over this sort of traverse above quite a big gully. And then the last bit's almost like a rock staircase that you're climbing out and onto the summit. And uh, as she got onto that, I was coming last, she was in the middle, and she just turned around to me. I knew what she was going to say before she said it. It was exactly what I was thinking. She said, I don't want this to end. You've done all the Burkitts now, then. I've done the difficult one. The one. Yeah, that's that, it. If you've done that, the, the rest an is... An awful lot of people on 540 Burkitts. <laughs> my walk, again, yeah, lots of competition always, isn't there? But the walk from my house in Naddle Valley, up Shulthwaite Gill, over High Tove, down to Watenlath, down the valley, through the woods to Lodor Falls, carry on over Manistee, and then up through the woods north on the Cumbria Way to Keswick and then back home. And it's just got a bit of everything. I think I like walks where you have continued change through the course of the whole walk. And that's got it. And I love being able to stop for maybe scone at the cafe at Watenlaf. It's a bit hit and miss whether that will be open. But then you get your pint at the Lodor Falls then you get your cake at Lingholm. And then after that, where you're in Keswick, so you can do what you like at that point. So, I mean, it can be quite an expensive walk. but uh, <laughs> Not too many people up at the Shulthwaite Valley, though. You don't get many people up there. But yeah, great, great walk. Uh, and now there's just enough time for a final selection of clips to see us into 2024. And in a year that's not been awash with peace and goodwill, we've compiled a few clips that had us chuckling away on the hillsides. I'll thank George Kitching for joining Mark and myself today. Thanks, George. Then I'll hand over to Jacob Tonkin and a rather lovely anecdote about the Keswick afterlife. Escapades with the brilliantly named Hater Potato Vater with Ian Hall. Then Debbie North on the healing non-properties of didgeridoo therapy. An easy hunt and an unlikely gift to the Kaiser with Charlotte Fairburn. And finally, Country Stride would not be quite what it is without at least one of Mark's many puns. It's not often that he's outflanked, but the fell foodie did his very best in this rather tortuous closing exchange. Thanks for joining us in 2023. We'll be back very soon. I now live just at Thirlmere. You can almost see my house from here, just wow. where the sun's shining, the Santa High Rig. And the chap whose house I moved into is mates of mine and my granddad. And when I said we were moving into Des Oliver's house, oh. my granddad goes, I didn't know Des Oliver had died. And I said, <laughs> and I said, no, no, he hasn't. He's moved to Keswick. And my granddad said, aye, that's the same thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so could we talk about that pursuit that you had tried growing potatoes? Oh, I'd rather not, but if you insist. Um, 1976 being such a hot year was very hard on potatoes and the, sh the price shot up enormously. So we thought, well, next year we'll grow our own. There's a little back field behind the farmhouse. We would cut about an acre of it, try and make potatoes in that. We invested in a thing called a hater potato vater, which was supposed to do the whole job for us, really. Um, pulled along behind the tractor. It was basically a rotavator, and it rotavated to the best of its ability, but it was very stony ground, and every now and again, the stones would fly off in all directions. Bits of the potato vater would fly off in all directions. Jeff would be welding them back on again. Eventually, we got it all turned over-ish and stitched up-ish, and we planted the potatoes and uh, hoped for the best. But when we came to taking them out, the potato vater was absolutely useless, so we ended up lifting them all by fork 
and I doubt we got much more out of it than we actually put into it. And that was really the tale of all those early farming experiences. You put an awful lot of effort in and end up with very little profit. There was a great sadness. And we tried all sorts of things because being outdoors was our spiritual home. And we tried to get that spirituality through other means. I mean, you'd laugh. We even tried didgeridoo therapy to listening to somebody playing a didgeridoo. I remember sitting in my wheelchair, Andy was laid on the floor, and he opened one eye and looked at me. And he, that look that only a couple has together, like, what the bloody hell are we doing here with this man? And his didgeridoo. We did angel therapy. We did everything to try and get that spiritual bit back into our lives. But this was our spiritual life. Outdoors was our spirituality. So, you know, it, it didn't matter how loud or how long you could hold that woo. And <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't going to work for us. So, uh, oh, we're bloody crackers, bearers, bloody crackers. <laughs> And intriguingly, we have a place set here for His Imperial Majesty, the German Emperor. So this was a feast for the real elite. We've established that the LOL was a great sportsman, and one of the sports he enjoyed was yachting. And he was at the Cow's Regatta, and he came across the Kaiser. I think they were both vain men, so they recognised friends in one another. And the Kaiser came here on two occasions in 1895 and in 1902, both of them for tutoring. The LOL laid on all sorts of pageantry. He organised the streets of Penrith to be lined with people waving flags and there was a great big feast at a hotel in Windermere. He came in August. It was all about grouse shooting, about deer stalking. The Kaiser, as you probably know, had a withered arm and he was also, um, as I've already mentioned, rather a vain man. So the LOL had to organise a lot of bunnies to be imported so that he could have an incredible time shooting an unbelievable bag. <laughs> 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 it was a moment of great pageantry, and when he came to say thank you to the LOL for having him as his guest, he produced, <laughs> he produced a great big white marble bust of himself. <laughs> Fleetwith Pike is always a favourite of mine, heading that sort of way, cooking on the tops there. I've had quite a few different cooks on the top there, from making a nice steak dish on the tops, I did a nice puttanesca pasta out there, the caprese salad once. So I've had times out in the boffies there as well, sort of Dubs Hut and Bourne Scale out there too. So a spot I will go back to on multiple occasions, I think it's fantastic for the sunset, looking across. As for one particular meal, tough to put it down into one. Will there be any butter, mayor in there? <laughs> <laughs> There's been put to me on occasion, yes. I haven't quite baked a cake on, uh, on Bakestall yet, though. <laughs> <laughs>